Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail, Hail Mary, Mary full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this week's episode, Bishop talks about the upcoming Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity, the Blessed Virgin Mary's title as Mother of the Church, and then he answers questions submitted by listeners. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thank you again for taking some time out of your schedule for us. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to be here. Coming up this Sunday is the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. Now, last week we talked about the Holy Spirit because of Pentecost and kind of we're in between the two now. With the Trinity, we talked a little bit about how the Father and the Son might be a little bit easier for us to identify with than the Holy Spirit. Why is it important that God is a Trinity? What does that mean? And why is it so confusing for us? <laughs> well, it's the central mystery of our faith and our life because it's the mystery of God in himself. There's one God in a communion of three divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you're right, it's an incomprehensible mystery. We cannot fully understand it. I remember the old Baltimore Catechism said that we will not understand it until we reach heaven. Hmm. But you know what? Sometimes because of that, we can be tempted to say, okay, I'm not going to really think a lot about this. I'll never fully understand it. Uh, that's the wrong approach. You know, the fact is, we do know something of the Trinity that Jesus revealed to us. Even though it surpasses our complete understanding, this is at the very root of our Christian faith. We profess one God in three persons, and they are three persons distinct from one another, yet they are of one nature, what we call substance. We profess in the creed that the Son is consubstantial with the Father. Mm -hmm. We profess that with the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit 
is worshipped and glorified. So the Holy Spirit is consubstantial okay. with the Father and the Son. And the three persons are inseparable in both the inner life of God and in God's gift of love for the world. Hmm. When we think, for example, of the creation of the universe, it's the creation of by the Holy Trinity. So I think, you know, I think sometimes some of the language can be difficult. The language that has been developed, especially in the early centuries of the church, when there was a lot of controversy beginning in the fourth century with the Arian heresy, you know, there these debates about whether Christ was human or divine. And then, of course, the bishops met at Nicaea in the year 325. And at that council, the conclusion was that Jesus Christ is the same substance of the Father. You know, we, we profess that consubstantial. And then there was another ecumenical council in the year 381, and it was held in Constantinople. And the bishops clarified that the Holy Spirit was God, that the Holy Spirit was consubstantial with the Father and the Son. So this doctrine of the Holy Trinity, it's, it's already there. I mean, Jesus, in Scripture, Jesus revealed to us. I mean, he said, for example, go out to all the world and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But our understanding and confession of faith in the Trinity developed, especially in, the, in light of those controversies of the 4th and 5th centuries. I think it's helpful to, to understand the terms that were used at that time and that we still use today. The church uses that term substance, sometimes essence or nature, substance, uh -huh. to designate the divine being in the unity. In other words, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of the same essence and substance. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So that word substance indicates the unity, that there is one God. At the same time, we use another word. The Greek word is hypostasis, which we've translated as person, is that we designate the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the real distinction among them. And where is that distinction? Is It is in their relation. So the term relation to designate the fact that the distinction of the three divine persons lies in the relationship of each to the others. Mm. So the Father is not the Son, and neither the Son or the Father is the Holy Spirit. There's a distinction in relationship, even though they are of the same essence or substance. Every Catholic should know those basic terms. I mean, if you really want to delve into it, I mean, when you read about the controversies at those ecumenical councils, you can read about the philosophical terms that are used like substance and relation and person, all that. There's a lot of theological works on the Trinity, wrestling with the mystery. All Catholics should know these basic terms, I think, because they are terms that we still use when we describe the meaning of the Holy Trinity. The readings that we'll have on Sunday, each year there's different readings, the three-year cycle on the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity, but in the gospel that we'll hear this Sunday, it's part of Jesus's farewell address to the disciples at the Last Supper. 
And he promised them that he would send the Holy Spirit. So the gospel kind of focuses on the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke about the coming of the, the spirit of truth. And he says that the spirit will lead us into all truth and the spirit will glorify him. Of course, we just celebrated the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit being poured out in abundance upon the church. This Sunday in a second reading, we'll hear St. Paul to the Romans, where he speaks about the love of God and says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So the Holy Spirit pours charity into our hearts. This is a beautiful mystery. Through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, God's love for us takes hold of our inner self, our inmost self, and that enables us to go through life with joy and hope, even when there's suffering or adversity. I could, I could go on and on. This is a great mystery for us to contemplate, great mystery of our faith that Jesus has revealed to us, that God is this communion of three divine persons. God is not infinite solitude. He's an eternal communion of life and love. It's in God, as St. Paul says, that we live and move and have our being. The mystery of the Trinity has great relevance. It's the life that dwells in us and, and sustains us. And we've been given a share in his divine nature through baptism that, yeah, God has poured into our hearts his love through the Holy Spirit. We've become temples of the Holy Spirit. We're sons and daughters of God, and we're united to Christ, the Son. The God makes his dwelling within us. And I think the second reading and the gospel are really obvious how they fit in with the Trinity. The first reading, I'm finding a little confusing. It <laughs> comes from Proverbs chapter 8, and it's spoken through the voice of wisdom, I was hoping maybe you could break this down for me a little bit. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me about the first reading, Kyle. <laughs> the first reading is from, it's a very, very famous passage, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to 31. The reason I, I'm joking about that is, is uh, this passage was heavily debated in the early church, huh. in the... Uh, for example, at the Council of Nicaea and afterwards, uh -huh. the other councils, like the Arians, those who denied the divinity of Christ, they use this text to justify their their belief that Jesus was, was created, that we say, no, I mean, the Son of God always existed. Right. The Arian heresy said Jesus was, was just human. But anyhow, the reason that passage from Proverbs depends on how it's interpreted. I'll just, maybe it would be helpful if I read it because just to talk about it on the radio, uh, sure. maybe I should read it so people know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, Thus says the wisdom of God, the Lord possessed me, the beginning of his ways, the forerunner of his prodigies of long ago. From of old, I was poured forth at the first before the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains or springs of water, before the mountains were settled into place, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet the earth and fields were not made, nor the first clods of the world. When the Lord established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the vault over the face of the deep, 
when he made firm the skies above, when he fixed fast the foundations of the earth, when he set for the sea its limit, so that the waters should not transgress his command. Then was I beside him as his craftsman, and I was his delight day by day, playing before him all the while, playing on the surface of his earth, and I found delight in the human race. Okay, who's the speaker here? The speaker is the wisdom of God. Okay, so wisdom was present at creation. We heard that. I mean, that's what the whole the whole passage I just read is all about. When the Lord established the heavens, wisdom was there. When order was imposed on chaos, wisdom was there. But notice wisdom is referred to as she. Mm-hmm. Um, and wisdom is, the wisdom of God is personified here. So in this chapter eight, she describes her relationship with God. This is what we call literary personification. Okay. okay. Wisdom is an attribute of God. Here it's personified, made as a person. The reason it's used on Trinity Sunday is it's, this reading really prepares for the revelation of the Trinity. Because in the New Testament, wisdom is applied to Jesus Christ. Jesus is spoken of as, is called the wisdom of God. St. John refers hmm. to the second person of the Trinity as the logos, the word of God. But then you see also in the gospels and especially in St. Paul, Jesus referred to as the wisdom of God. So as I mentioned, the Arians said, okay, the way it's described here, it's as if wisdom is created. Now it depends on, there's a Hebrew word that's used there, kana, and it was translated in the in the reading we just heard as the Lord possessed me. In other words, the Lord acquired me. It can also be translated, though, as created me. Hmm. And that's where the controversy went. And you could read how different fathers of the church uh, dealt with that. Like St. Athanasius wrote a lot about this. this. This chapter, this exegesis of this chapter was very controversial in the early centuries. And the idea of, okay, well, why the feminine? Why is wisdom spoken of in feminine? Because the word for wisdom in, in Hebrew is, is uh, feminine. By the way, so is the word in Hebrew for spirit is feminine. But we can't draw theological conclusions by the gender of nouns in any language. For example, if you look at that word spirit, it's feminine in Hebrew and Aramaic, but it's masculine in Latin. Hmm. And if you read the Greek, it's neuter. So we don't do build theologies on the basis of gender. In fact, if you look at, for example, the the Russian language, the word Trinity is feminine, huh. uh, and there's feminine adjectives, et cetera. But that's how language works. Yeah. You don't draw conclusions about masculinity and femininity in that same sense. And when we look at God, he's not masculine or feminine. Mm-hmm. God is God. Uh, now, Jesus was a man. Mm-hmm. God incarnate took his uh, assumed human nature as a man. So anyhow, that that whole question about, about that, I think it's important to, to understand. In some of the masses of the Blessed Virgin Mary, 
that have to do with this uh, wisdom in the Old Testament, personified wisdom, uh, it'll be applied sometimes to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Hmm. And you say, well, how was she there at creation? Right. Well, Mary was present in the mind of God. So we can say that. Now, we have a title for Mary that we we use, Seat of Wisdom, because Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, was born of the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. So... um, Anyhow, that's that's getting into this a little bit. I hope it's somewhat helpful to our listeners. We believe that that the Son of God is the Logos, is the wisdom of God, but the uncreated wisdom of God. Okay? Not created. Right. The Arians had this idea of kind of a intermediary between God and man, like a, a demiurge kind of creature that they, but then again, that gets into all this controversy of the fourth and fifth century. It might be interesting if you take a course to study in Christology or Trinitarian theology, you can you can delve into this or, or read about it in theological literature. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Well, speaking of Mary, we're going to be talking about Mary, mother of the church, and also the two hearts we recognize, the Immaculate Heart and the Sacred Heart, coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And going back earlier in the week, we had on Monday the Memorial of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Church. You just talked a little bit about Mary's role and some of the the allusions from the Old Testament to Mary. What do we celebrate as Mary, Mother of the Church? And is this what we remember when Jesus tells John, behold your mother, and tells Mary, behold your son? Is this... Is that where we get the mother of the church from? Yes. I mean, that's when, that's the moment where Mary became our spiritual mother. When our Lord from the cross entrusted uh, her to John and entrusted John to her. Now, this memorial of the Blessed Virgin Mary, mother of the church, if you remember, was only established last year. And it was the first time it was celebrated was last year. Huh. And that was Pope Francis's decision that the day after Pentecost, Every year would be the memorial of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Church. Okay. And significantly, in light of your question, Kyle, the gospel for that memorial is John 19, which talks about Jesus on the cross saying to, to Mary, his mother, woman, behold your son, and then saying to the disciple, St. John, behold your mother. Mm-hmm. And we read in the gospel, from that hour, the disciple took Mary into his home. That's a beautiful thing. We're all called to take Mary into our home, like John did. Mm-hmm. There's a choice as far as the first reading for Mass on um, the feast of, or the memorial of Mary, Mother of the Church. They give you the choice of Genesis chapter 3, which has to do with original sin and the uh, proto-evangelium, as, as it's called, where, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman hmm. and between your offspring and hers. But the other reading that's possible is from the Acts of the Apostles, the first chapter, which speaks about how the apostles were gathered in prayer in the upper room together with Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
as they prayed and waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit. I think that's the one I like to use, that that option, because it's very connected to Pentecost, which is celebrated the day before this feast. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea, I always think, of Mary as the queen of the apostles. She's there with the church in the upper room as kind of the spiritual mother of the apostles waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So so that makes uh, a lot of sense to me to have that reading on the memorial of, by the way, that title, Mother of the Church, was a title that St. Pope Paul VI used during the Second Vatican Council. But there wasn't a liturgical feast for it right. until Pope Francis instituted it last year. And then we have the month of August dedicated to Blessed Mother's Immaculate Heart. And then June is a month dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Can you talk a little bit about the similarities, but then maybe also the differences between the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary? Yeah, and sometimes they'll speak of the Sacred Heart of Mary. I've heard that too, but we, okay. more typically we, we speak of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. By the, the heart, of course, is the symbol of the person, the whole person. And therefore, when we speak of the Sacred Heart of Jesus or the Immaculate Heart of Mary, we're talking about their personhood, the seat of their emotions, the seat of their virtues, and therefore, you know, honoring and venerating their hearts and being devoted to their hearts is, is really being devoted to that particular aspect of them, which we associate always with the heart, and that's love. Christ's infinite love. Mm -hmm. And we, we think about how our Lord's heart was pierced with the sword as he uh, hung on the cross after he died, and the church was born from his pierced heart. The water and the blood flowed out, you know, baptism and Eucharist. And similarly, in, when we think of the heart of Mary, of course, Mary was without sin, so we can speak of her heart as the immaculate heart. But also, she was so united to her son. She not only loved him with all her heart, but she also shared in his mission. And she shared in his suffering. She was there at the foot of the cross. She participated in his redemptive mission and, and had in her heart that perfect love. Uh, for her son, but also for all of those redeemed by the heart of her son. So she's the mother of the redeemed. As, Mar as Eve was the mother of all the living, Mary is the new Eve, and she's the mother of all those redeemed by her son. So I think these, you know, a lot of houses, a lot of homes, Catholic homes, you'll see images of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, sometimes next to each other. Mm -hmm. You see both hearts, for example, on the Miraculous Medal. You know, you have uh, on the Miraculous Medal, the Heart of Jesus and the Heart of Mary. And these are very special devotions. Uh, we even have liturgical feasts. In June, we have the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Solemnity, actually. Mm -hmm. And then we also, on the day after, have... The, uh, the memorial of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Okay. So, yeah, so I think it's a beautiful devotion. Uh, I think I might have mentioned this show before, one of my favorite litanies to pray is the litany of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I especially love to pray that when we have exposition of the Blessed Sacrament, but that's probably my favorite litany. Okay. Well, 
On the topic of our Blessed Mother, I thought maybe for our Catholic Word of the Week, we could do the word Theotokos. Could you explain this one? Theotokos, definitely. We go back to the early church again. That was the term that was used at the Council of Ephesus in the year 451, when the bishops really condemned another heresy, Nestorianism, which basically said that Mary was only the mother of the human Jesus. It kind of made Jesus into two persons, Nestorianism. Well, the council fathers at Ephesus said, no, Mary is Theotokos. She is the mother of God. A more literal translation is God bearer, mm -hmm. that she carried God. She didn't just carry the human Jesus because really, there, otherwise you make make him into a split person out two different persons no the baby in her womb was the son of god yeah it, he was the son of god it was the incarnate son of god the second person of the blessed trinity who assumed the human nature and took the form of a little baby yeah in her womb so she is truly god bearer she is theotokos all right well, if you have questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have some questions from college students and questions about Catholic colleges and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for him to answer. And we have received a few listener-submitted questions recently that revolve around colleges and college students. And since they're home for summer break now, maybe this episode would be a good one to respond to their questions. A student asked, do you have any advice on how to be more devout Catholic on a secular college campus? Great question. You know, it can be challenging because on college campuses today, sometimes in the classroom even, there can be a lot of values that are communicated that are contrary to our Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. um, there's a certain secularization that has taken place in, in American higher education. Uh, sometimes you see the new atheism. Uh, so it can be tough. So what is a practicing, believing Catholic to do in that situation? Well, first of all, I think it's important to maintain a good prayer life. Mm -hmm. I think one should continue to receive strength from the Lord in prayer. I think uh, hopefully there's a Catholic campus ministry that one can get involved in so that one has support from others. You know, it's important to be part of a Catholic Christian community when you're at college, uh, at a non-Catholic college that you have brothers and sisters in the faith that you pray together or you can support one another, you can socialize together, mm -hmm. all the rest, and maybe evangelize a little bit as well. Sure. I think it's important to to bear witness to your faith in the in that secular atmosphere. How do you do that? It's mostly by your by your, the way you live. Your witness can sometimes be through words. I mean, topics of faith can come up for discussion in the classroom or it's, you know, outside the classroom. I would say don't be afraid, but always present the truth in a in a, uh, a positive way with charity. I think that can go a long way. And even if you might be the only one in the classroom who, for example, is pro-life or the only one in the classroom who believes that marriage is between one man and one woman, 
just don't be afraid. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's our Lord, you know, spoke often about being persecuted, about being rejected. It takes courage, really. But one has to be prudent and one always has to speak with charity. So to maintain one's faith, but also to grow in one's faith in college, because especially when different questions might come up about things we believe, and if these beliefs are attacked, one has to have a way to defend. And that might mean, you know, delving more deeply into the teachings of our faith and why we believe what we believe. Sure. That's a good thing for, you know, some apologetics can be helpful. But that's where Catholic Campus Ministry can also be helpful or having good friends uh, so that one's continuing to grow in their knowledge of the faith, but always to bearing witness by love, mm -hmm. by being a, a person who is a witness, an example to others of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that means not participating in things that are against the teachings of Christ mm -hmm. and bearing witness to him in the positive way by kindness and compassion, uh, by reaching out to fellow students perhaps who are hurting. You know, everyone, you know, longs for the happiness and joy, and that comes ultimately from God. So, so bear witness to the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of our faith. All right, great. We had a couple questions come in regarding Catholic identity of colleges and universities across the country, which at least some of them seem to be prioritizing academics or ecumenism over the Catholic identity. Does this concern you? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I think I'd like to point out the great uh, apostolic exhortation or letter of Pope St. John Paul II, Ex Corde Ecclesiae, uh -huh. which talked about the Catholic identity and mission of uh, Catholic colleges and universities, okay. a really important document on what it means to be Catholic and certain things about what makes a college or university Catholic. There are certain fundamental things that, that need to be there. But unfortunately, there are Catholic colleges and universities in the United States that have strayed from their Catholic roots mm -hmm. and accommodated too much to the secularistic culture. Whereas John Paul talks about how Catholicism should permeate every aspect of life at a Catholic university or college. The questioner mentioned prioritizing academics or ecumenism. Well, I would mm -hmm. say about ecumenism, um, well, that is part of the Catholic faith that we are irrevocably committed to the pursuit of Christian unity. I think what they may have in mind is where the Catholic faith in some places might be watered down, okay. which is a problem. We should be, a, a Catholic college, in my opinion, should be robustly Catholic, mm -hmm. but also committed to the ecumenical task. The issue of academics is an important one. Of course, uh, a university by its nature is an academic community. Uh -huh. So there is a certain priority given to academics. That's why we have universities. Sure. I think maybe they're saying, well, where does Catholicism come in when it comes to academics? Well, a truly Catholic college university should have should teach Catholic theology. That should have a very important part in the curriculum. And also, there is the possibility, especially in courses that have to do with humanities and other courses, even science, where there can be an integration of faith with reason. And I think that is really important, that we have professors who 
who do believe and who are able to introduce, you know, be able to, to deal with this integration of faith and reason, which is part of the academic enterprise of a Catholic institution, recognizing the legitimate autonomy of various disciplines, but at the same time, hopefully being able to to talk about their their compatibility between, for example, what they're learning in science and what 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 we know from our faith and what we study in theology. So I think it's important that our Catholic colleges and university be strong intellectually, strong academically, and um, being strongly Catholic or vigorously or robustly Catholic doesn't in any way lessen the academic rigor right. that should be there. Are there any ramifications or oversight for Catholic institutions, specifically educational institutions, that are either allowing or even encouraging things that are contrary to the faith? Well, that's an interesting thing. It depends on the governance of each university. For example, there are a few in the United States that are diocesan. So the bishop has some uh, role in governance. Mm -hmm. There are very few, though. Okay. Most were founded by religious institutes, religious orders. Uh -huh. But then in the 1960s, many of those colleges Governance was turned over to predominantly lay boards of trustees. Mm. And in some cases, many cases, reserve powers were kept by the religious order or a separate board that they created. So you have to look at the governance. But even if there is a lay board of trustees or primarily lay board of trustees, if it's a Catholic college or university, there's a call to have a good and strong and faithful Catholic identity. Wow. But they're the ones who would oversee the protection of that mission. Sometimes they, you know, people will say, well, why isn't the bishop saying something because such and such is going on? Well, the bishop can say something, but he can't do anything about it if because he has no governing authority, juridic mm -hmm. authority over the institution. Where the bishop would have authority would be, you know, for example, I would give a mandatum to teachers of theology, which... Okay testifies that they're teaching in communion with the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Also, when it comes to pastoral ministry, the celebration of sacraments, etc., that's overseen by the bishop. You know, priests, for example, have to have faculties from the bishop. The bishop also has the authority to determine whether a place is Catholic or not, the title Catholic. But, you know, that's that's about it, unless it's a diocesan college or university. But it's important that there be a communion between the leadership of a Catholic university and the local bishops. I mean, if it's if it's Catholic, that's part of being Catholic, is that you're in communion with the church. Mm -hmm. And you can't be communion, in communion with the church in just kind of some nebulous way. It's a very real way through one's communion with the local bishop. So we have five Catholic colleges in our diocese. It's important. Uh, my relationship with the leaders of those universities and with a lot of the, I have good relationships with a lot of faculty at mm -hmm. those colleges and universities, uh, important relationship with the presidents of the universities and sometimes with the boards. It varies a little differently. Uh, you know, I have kind of a different relationship with the different colleges or universities, sure. but definitely I have a relationship. I also am involved in, you know, I love being on on some of the campuses. I'm at Notre Dame a lot for liturgies. I, I teach in some of the classrooms. I give talks. Hmm. So I, for me, being active in our Catholic colleges and universities is, is really um, important. I don't feel like a stranger, in other words. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's one thing Pope John Paul said in Ex Corde Ecclesiae, that the bishops shouldn't be seen just as like some kind of external agent. And I don't feel that, that way. Mm-hmm. Even though I may not have much authority as far as the law is concerned, I do believe that, you know, it's important that as the local bishop, that this be, that there be a good, strong communion between me and and our colleges and universities, Catholic colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. All right. Our next question is another leftover from the Rekindle the Fire conference who said, we have a number of teenagers here today, which is great. However, there's a lack of programs and activities for our young men in our parishes. Are there any plans in our diocese to engage our teens to bring them closer to Christ? It's an interesting question. Um, Actually, I do know a lot of parishes that have active youth ministry programs and activities. I think the the questioner is referring about specifically for young men. Well, my experience is that most of the youth youth ministry going on, it's co-ed. Sure. That really we don't have separate. I mean, there are some places where there might be some separate. Uh, I think there's a, a young men's group, teenage group at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in, in Fort Wayne called Fraternos, right. I think. But really, it's up to the parishes, you know, how they want to structure their youth ministry. And some parishes, maybe because of lack of enough resources, maybe some of the smaller parishes, their youth ministry sometimes is done jointly with neighboring parishes, which can can work as well. Mm-hmm. As far as there's a lot that the church, that the diocese does to support youth ministry, I mean, when I think about the big investment we, we make into our four Catholic high schools, and they all have campus ministry mm-hmm. within the high schools, that's really significant. We do plug into the National Catholic Youth Conference. Uh, so we, the diocese sponsors our, our teenagers to go to that, mm-hmm. as well as World Youth Day, which I go to, right. and be able to take teenagers and young adults to these international gatherings with the Pope. That's a powerful experience. I do believe we have a lot to engage our teens. One of the things that I really promote and think a lot of our parishes are doing in the area of youth ministry for teenagers is the Y Disciples program, which comes out of the Augustine Institute in Denver. And I think that's one of the most successful models because it it brings young people together in small groups. Mm -hmm. And there's a spiritual and a catechetical and a social dimension to the Y Disciple program. So we promoted that a lot. If there is nothing going on or little going on in a parish, that's disappointing. Mm-hmm. I think it should be part of the mission of every parish. And if they can't do it themselves, I think they they should team up with a neighboring parish or two. Mm-hmm. All right. I think there are a lot of things and maybe just people aren't aware of what all is available. And maybe if you contact your parish or a nearby parish or contact the diocese for information about that as well, you can get plugged in with some of those things that are happening. So also I'll mention that in the July 18th episode, we back 2018, July 18th, we talked with Sean Allen and four young adults. If you want to hear a little bit more about what the diocese is doing for young adult ministry as well, but you can ask your questions by going to redeemerradio.com slash ask Bishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have questions about Lexio Divina and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. Someone said, 
You have mentioned Lexio Divina as a way to pray through scripture. Can you describe it more? Is there a book on Lexio you would recommend? Well, I, you know, I, I, um, thinking about a book, um, I know Tim Gray, uh, an author, and I think it's maybe published by Ascension Press, has a, an introduction to Lexio Divina, of course. Lexio Divina is praying with, with the scriptures. One very good spiritual reading that I've been doing is called Thirsting for Prayer by Jacques Philippe. Very good spiritual author, Thirsting for Prayer by Jacques Philippe. And it's a book published by Scepter Publishers. And it's just a few pages where he, towards the end of the book, writes about Lexio Divina and how to do it. It's not complicated. Um, I, I love doing Lexio Divina. Um, maybe I could just give you a few pointers about how to do it. Traditionally, uh, this actually this process of, of Lexio Divina, the different stages of it, really was developed in the Middle Ages, even though Lexio Divina was being done long before that. But this more structured way of doing it, uh, Lexio is a Latin word which means reading. So, so really, you're reading the scripture, but you're also meditating on it. Meditation, that's the second stage. The third stage is prayer. So you're praying with the scriptures. And fourth, contemplation. You're, you're contemplating. So that's actually, when you think about the contemplation, that fourth stage, that's really God's grace. The others are more kind of human uh, activity. So you read the passage, take a passage, you read it very slowly, and you stop when something you know, hits you. And maybe repeat that phrase or that sentence several times and just kind of sit there with it. That's, that's meditation. And you can pray. You can do a prayer of uh, petition, for example. So it really is allowing the Word of God to come into our hearts and into our minds more deeply. One can do some writing after one has finished Lexio Divina to mm -hmm. put one's thoughts down. That's a helpful thing. The whole idea, though, you have to prepare well. You have to kind of clear your head before you enter into Lexio. You know, sometimes, you know, you might dwell quite a few minutes uh, on just one verse that, that really has touched your heart, and you kind of enter into dialogue with God based on what, what he's saying to us. You know, there might be a passage where, you know, a teaching of Jesus, it's pretty challenging. That's where the prayer comes in. At that point, I'll say, Lord, help me to live this. Hmm. Or sometimes it leads me to thank God for some particular verse that I find consoling or encouraging. The idea is, you know, you just don't read. Uh, you do this very slowly. You approach the passage with this contemplative attitude, um, realizing that this is God speaking to me. This is his inspired word. So we're applying our minds and also our hearts to what we're doing. Um, and I think we all kind of do Lexio Divina according to our own personality in certain, in certain ways. Hmm. I know sometimes I can end up, you know, being too intellectual where it's hitting, I, I'm thinking about it too much, but I'm not loving enough. So I might have to stop a little bit and stop analyzing a text and let's let God speak to my heart. Hmm. But we all have kind of different, uh, 
different kinds of personalities. You know, it might be nice to do the readings, do the gospel of the day as Lexio Divina. You can do a, a psalm. I mean, sometimes it's beautiful to do Lexio Divina with one of the psalms. Or you might want to say, okay, I'm going to, during Lent, I'm going to do Lexio Divina on the whole passion narrative in one of the gospels. And, um, you know, sometimes one can also do some reading apart from the time of prayer, a commentary on the passage that can also bring some more insights. But I would avoid that while one is actually praying, mm. you know, because you don't want it to become merely an intellectual exercise. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Yeah, I'd be happy to do maybe a special blessing for all the fathers, our fathers, that uh, with Father's Day coming up. Uh, okay. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless all of the fathers who are listening to this program and all the fathers of our listeners. May he bestow his strength, his love, his protection upon them. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.